0: I mean, I I don't think it's, from our point of view, realistic to think that Congress, dominated as it is by a party that has had great sympathy for trial lawyers, is going to strengthen federal preemption um, in the area of prescription drugs. If anything, uh, the major legislative battle is going to be over proposals to weaken federal preemption in the area of medical devices.
1: This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams
2: from mostly sunny Southern California. Today's show, Bob, is sponsored by Clio, Huron Consulting Group, Landy Insurance, and Top Class Actions. And I see I'm supposed to mention that uh, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called
1: How to Get Sued and Shortly, another one going to be called Bad Decisions. A busy person, Craig. I, I write a blog called Law Sites and a Legal Blog Watch for Law dot com, and also my media law blog. Uh, Craig, last November on this program, we took a, a look ahead at uh, what might happen in the case of Wyeth versus Levine. Uh, some at that point were calling this the the business case of the century. Uh, this is the case in which Diana Levine. Uh, the plaintiff in the case uh, originally had lost her arm to gangrene due to an IV push with the drug Phenogen. Uh, we talked then about uh, the potential power of, of the FDA, about issues of preemption, uh, and what the ruling might mean for the future of uh, the pharmaceutical industry and, uh, and the FDA itself.
2: Well last week, Bob, in a six to three decision, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Ms Levine upholding the six point seven million dollar verdict. Today on lawyer to lawyer, we're going to talk to wife's attorney to get his reaction to this controversial ruling and discuss the impact this ruling will have on the FDA, pharmaceutical companies, and ultimately patients.
1: so we're pleased to have with us today uh, attorney Bert W. Ryan. Uh, Attorney Ryan is a founding partner of the law firm Wiley Ryan. Uh, He is widely recognized as a leading litigator and international law expert. Uh, He's been noted by uh, Legal Times, the Washington DC publication as Washington's leading food and drug lawyer and named by Corporate Counsel Magazine as one of the best lawyers in America for excellence in business and commercial litigation, communications and antitrust law. Attorney Ryan uh, was uh, one of the lead lawyers in representing Wyeth Pharmaceuticals in the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, uh, arguments and, and uh, uh, decision in this case. So welcome to the program, Attorney Burt Ryan.
0: Well, thank you very much. I um, hope to be able to answer some of your questions and elaborate on the decision a little bit.
1: Per- perhaps you could just start by giving us the overview of what was at issue in this case.
0: Well, as the court described it, the, the issue in this case, these these so-called issues, and There were two of federal preemption: were whether the verdict of the Vermont jury, as sustained by the Vermont Supreme Court, could stand uh, against the requirements imposed on Wyeth under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act by the FDA. And Wyeth had raised two specific arguments with respect to its position, which was that there was an irreconcilable conflict between the regulatory regime put in place by Congress under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act and the requirements that were imposed on it through the judgment of the uh, Vermont jury. And let me just tell you very briefly what those were and how the court responded to them. First of all, YS arguments was that under the federal regime, when a label, this is a so-called professional label, it's a complete set of instructions that accompanies a drug made available to physicians to tell them the characteristics of the drug, how it's best used, and how it should be administered to their patients. So. That label is very much a part of the review done by the FDA to determine whether a drug should or should not be allowed to go on the market. Um, This review is an enormous project. It often takes several years. It involves the presentation of clinical trial data. It involves a complete description of the drug and its characteristics. At that point of approval, the FDA instructs a drug company that the labeling that's been approved, which accompanies the drug, is the only labeling that may be used uh, to sell the drug. After, in the so-called post-approval phase, the FDA has recognized that new information may come to light, and the FDA has created mechanisms for companies to modify a label when new information arising from use in the real world changes the perception of what ought to be said about the drug. Wyeth's position was that in the case of this drug, Phenergan, uh there was no new information available after the last approval date, which could have caused Wyeth to change its label. And notwithstanding that, therefore, it was, as Wyeth believed, compelled by federal law to maintain that label, the jury said the label is inadequate, and unless it were different from the label that Wyeth used, it would be creating an unreasonably safe drug and therefore Wyeth was responsible for the injury to Ms. Levine. So that was one of the arguments in the case. It's called impossibility preemption, and it arises where the federal government literally commands a regulated person to take a certain action, and a state seeks to hold that person liable for doing exactly what the federal government told them to do. Now, the court addressed that argument at some length, and it said in order to make that argument stick, the regulated person, the manufacturer, would be required to make a clear demonstration that the FDA would not have permitted it to change the label, taking into account the evidence the plaintiff thought would have warranted a change. In this case, the the evidence at issue was some 20 adverse event reports, that is, situations in which the drug Phenagrin had not been properly administered and had caused an injury. And the court said, well, that should have been enough for Wyeth to reanalyze the information presented in the label and come to a different conclusion, and that the court was not persuaded that the FDA would have stopped them from doing it. Uh, Wyeth's position, and one can judge who has the better of it, was that the events that were called to attention occurred over a span of about 40 years of use in 200 million applications, and that while they were in fact occurring, they were occurring at a rate and with a severity that was well known at the time of the approval. That information, that expectation had already been taken into account by the FDA, and therefore that the FDA would not have permitted Wyeth to make a change. The court said it disagreed with that, it thought the FDA would have permitted Wyeth to make a change, and therefore, Wyeth could not claim the benefit of impossibility preemption. Uh, Wyeth raised a second argument, it was a related argument, which was that the plaintiff below had argued that a proper label would have foreclosed the use of so-called push IV injection of Phenagrin, that is, a use in which Phenagrin was put into a needle and pushed into a vein, because um uh, that use, according to the plaintiff, and presumably as agreed by the jury, was too risky uh, because if the vein is missed and the drug enters an artery, either because it's actually pushed into the artery or because it accumulates outside the vein and seeps into the artery, uh, then there's a very substantial risk that there'll be tissue damage leading to gangrene. And the plaintiff said, it's too dangerous, they shouldn't have allowed it. Wyeth had argued that, look, the FDA was well aware of that risk. It's mentioned six times on the label, and notwithstanding that risk, the FDA thought that the added speed and potency of relief that's achievable from that form of injection direct push warranted keeping the option open for physicians. The court said that they did not see the administrative record as clearly establishing that trade-off, number one, and number two, that the jury verdict here was not so specific as the plaintiff's argument. That is, the jury was only required under Vermont law to find that the labeling was not good enough, and there were many ways to make it better so that they could not necessarily conclude that Vermont had required Wyeth to foreclose an option that the FDA had said to preserve. Ergo, there was no conflict of objectives between the FDA and the Vermont jury, or at least not one that had been clearly shown on the record, and thus so-called objects and purposes preemption was not applicable.
2: How do you think the pharmacy industry will be reacting to this? I mean, what kind of changes are you going to see in labeling and in the process of submitting applications to the FDA?
0: Well, I think that it's not so much in the process of submitting applications, it's in the process of dealing with new information coming to light out of clinical use post-approval. Since the court has emphasized that you need a very clear record of what the FDA might or might not have allowed, companies are going to have to look very carefully at their dealing with the FDA and decide how to present possible changes in the label to the FDA in situations where they don't want to make the change, but they want to make their analysis fully transparent to the FDA. because the court emphasized that Wyeth had not gone to the FDA and said, we don't want to change this label, even in light of these events, because the events are comprehended in the way the label is currently written, and will you please tell us, FDA, that you, Wyeth, are correct, and you, FDA, would not allow the change. Establishing that is going to put a new spin, if you will, on the interaction between companies and the FDA. The company will want to have recorded the FDA's view of the new evidence.
1: To what extent was this case decided based on uh, its facts, and to what extent does it carry uh, precedent for uh, other uh, preemption cases that may come down the pike?
0: Well, I think you know every case is decided on its facts, but clearly the court has established a framework for the litigation of the preemption issue with respect to prescription drugs. And has said some things that I suspect will spill over into other preemption areas. And to be specific, with respect to prescription drugs, as I said, the court has said, if you want to claim preemption, then you are going to have to put that administrative record to the test and you're going to have to show that no reasonable jury could conclude that the FDA would have allowed change X. You're also going to have, as a litigation matter, to push the plaintiff not just to say the current labeling is deficient, but in trying the preemption issue to specify what change should have been made to protect uh, the injured person, because that is a necessary element of determining, would that change have been permissible under the FDA regime? So it's going to change the way people present their cases as well as change the way they're going to deal with the FDA. And that's in the area of pharmaceuticals. I think, you know, from a broader point of view, what people will take out of this case are, are two things. Number one, uh, the court revived the so-called presumption against preemption. And it did not specify that that was something that was peculiar to prescription drugs. It, it reiterated a kind of formulation that said where there's a close case as to whether preemption lies The presumption is that the state should be able to have its way. It's kind of a tie goes to the runner rule uh, taken from baseball and and translated over into preemption cases. At least that's the way it's going to be read and argued. Um, This presumption has come in and out of preemption cases over time. Sometimes it's said to to, uh, exclusively apply in cases of statutory preemption, that is, you interpret the statute to minimize collision with state law sometimes it's said not to apply at all in so-called implied preemption cases, non-statutory cases, and now we've got an implied preemption case where the where the majority of the court says yes, it does apply. So I think that's going to be a takeaway. The second thing is the court kind of counseled agencies, the court kind of said if a federal agency wants to establish its supremacy, it wants to say this is the way we want the world to be regulated then it ought to do so by proper procedural means. The court was very critical of the FDA's effort through a preamble to a regulation to reach conclusions to be applied by courts in cases of preemption. I think the court thought the FDA was getting outside its own turf, not just regulating the world but declaring judicial results, and it wanted to make clear to agencies that the courts were not going to be invaded by agencies dictating judicial results, that the purpose of the agency was to regulate within the area that Congress had given it to affect the world. And that effect, in turn, might have preemptive effect, but not because the agency said so. So that's going to be another takeaway from this case that goes beyond its facts
1: were you uh i mean a number of uh, certainly prognosticators have been saying this is the case that demonstrates that uh, this is not the pro business supreme court we thought we had or at least some people thought they had and uh, there there seemed to be some surprise that justice thomas uh in a concurrence joined with the majority in this case uh, although he of course went out of his way to to uh to disclaim the the very kind of implied preemption you were just referring to, but right, it, it, are you? Were you? Uh, you know, is this the is this the the death knell <laughs> to the to the uh, concept of this as a pro business court? Uh, and, and were you at all surprised by the the lineup uh, of the justices as as they uh, as they came out in this case?
0: Well, you know, I, w- I would say this: I, I don't think we were at all surprised by the vote of Justice Thomas. Um Justice Thomas has consistently supported a limitation on the freelan what he deems to be the freelancing activities of the court that is uh creating vague doctrines under the Constitution and then having a lot of latitude to determine results. so his concurrence um with on the so called implied preemption objectives and purposes issues is not a surprise he has said before. I don't find that to be an acceptable doctrine because it gives too much discretion to judges and justices, and we should stick to the letter of the law. And he has said that in so many contexts, so many times, that one would not have anticipated a different view from him on so-called objections and purposes. Uh, Justice Thomas did not disavow the theory of impossibility preemption. You really can't because it's directly written into the Constitution. He just went along with the majority's view that he was not persuaded that Wyeth was unable to change the label. Uh, I think he put a great deal more energy into his views on implied preemption than he did into analyzing the specific facts on the impossibility preemption side. But, uh, again, not unexpected. Um, I think that the swing votes in this case, I mean, if you look at the majority's opinion, Justice Stevens' opinion, trying to cobble together a Sorted set of views, all kinds of caveats in there. Um, My guess is that from prior history, Justices Breyer and Kennedy uh, have warmer feelings toward preemption generally than the other three members of the majority. I mean, Justice Ginsburg has pretty much staked out a pro-consumer position, um, would be very reluctant to foreclose a claim on preemption grounds, was the only dissenter in the medical device amendments case, Regal. So she was hardly unexpected. I think um, Justice Souter is and Stevens are pretty much of that view. So you know, I think in that sense, those votes did did not surprise us. I think um, where we stood with um, Breyer and Kennedy was always what we thought was the crux of the case, and um, now we know. <laughs> All <laughs> right.
2: So what do you think the circumstances of the particular plaintiff in this case had an effect, whether it had an effect on the outcome of the case? I mean, they certainly picked a sympathetic plaintiff to uh, bring this matter. How much do you think that influenced the outcome?
0: Well, you know, if I, if I take uh, Justice Alito's dissent as a good view of the court, it, was a, it had a very substantial impact. And I suspect on the swing votes, um, the individual circumstances of what appeared to be a totally innocent victim— that is, there's no causality issue in this case. It was the drug that caused her injury. She didn't make any contribution to it. She didn't. She didn't administer it. So you had a very sympathetic plaintiff both a, in the Vermont uh, trial case. I mean, she was enormously sympathetic. She's a local person. She's a well-known performer, um, and has been on Vermont public television for a long time. She's very personable, and she really suffered a tragic and a horrendous injury. No question about it. Uh, I think that has certain pull on the Supreme Court. They're human, and in calling a close case, and if it doesn't affect the precedential value a lot, you may tend to call it for somebody with whom you sympathize. Um, we had always thought that, on the other hand, this case, from Wyeth's point of view, also presented a fairly pure pattern. It didn't involve allegations of overpromotion. It wasn't a drug, which was a big seller, where you might say, well, Wyeth was anxious to keep the labeling as simple as possible in order to preserve extensive use. The drug, by the time of her treatment, had gone generic. Um, So the case did not involve the kind of conduct allegations, misconduct allegations that have also popped up a great deal in, in pharmaceutical cases. So it was, from both parties' point of view, a fairly attractive case. It was a very attractive plaintiff's case from the characterization of the individual and the innocence of the victim. You didn't have allegations of smoking, drinking, overweight, the usual things that are litigated. And it was a decent case on the defendant side because you had no allegations of overpromotion, off-label use, or any of those um, ancillary characteristics that have influenced courts.
1: And, you know you allude to justice Alito's uh, dissent, and uh, there there are some who are saying that that even in Justice Alito's dissent, uh, the proponents of a, a a broad theory of preemption didn't didn't get what they wanted, that, that his dissent was very much focused on, on the facts of this case and uh, that doesn't support some of, the, some of the broader characterizations of preemption that at least some, some uh, lower courts had, uh, had applied in the past. I, I mean, are you, do you find good news in the dissent here? I mean, had this been the majority of opinion, would you have been happy with it? Or, or do you see it as, as a fairly restrictive uh, dissent uh, as well?
0: Well, I mean, we obviously would have been happy if it were the majority opinion, and it would have been very consistent with the way we presented and argued the case. That is, Wyeth did not claim anything approaching field preemption, meaning there should be no tort suits involving approved pharmaceuticals. We never said that. We hadn't argued that in Vermont. We did not argue that to the Supreme Court. So there would be no reason, um, in our view, for anybody to take that extreme position And that position really hadn't been adopted by any lower court. That is the so-called field preemption. Tort suits are ruled out. So Justice um, Alito's opinion really responded fairly directly to the arguments we were making. Uh, He just viewed the interaction between Wyeth and the FDA differently, and we would say more realistically, than the majority viewed it. He saw in that interaction a clear decision path in which the FDA had said, this label properly permits physicians to use push IV and properly warns and cautions them in ways that are appropriate to that use. And, you know, it's interesting to see where the two opinions wind up. The last um, line of the majority opinion says, well, the last before the, the... the the concluding paragraph, although we recognize that some state law claims might well frustrate the achievement of congressional objectives, this is not such a case. So the majority winds up saying, well, you know, you didn't make it here, but it could be done elsewhere. Justice Alito, on the other hand, winds up saying, well, you made it here, but it doesn't mean you'll always make it. So there's, there's probably more common ground on framework between the majority and the dissent than you first... You know, look at when they kind of go at each other as they, you know, as they normally do. But um, that being said, clearly we believe that the way the Justice and uh, Alito looked at the regulatory history was more true to the the facts than the way the court did it.
2: Well, we need to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more with Attorney Burt Ryan about the ruling and its effect on patients, the FDA, and the drug industry.
3: Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Huron Consulting Group's legal consulting practice, a leading provider of consulting and business services to corporations and law firms, helps align strategy, people, processes, and technology to meet the goals of the organization. We also help prepare and plan for all phases of discovery in a legal dispute or investigation we establish an effective records management program that creates cost savings and enhanced productivity while minimizing risk. Check out Velocity, the first comprehensive e-discovery solution. For more information, visit us at www.huronconsultinggroup.com. When it comes to protecting your legal practice, how confident are you that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price? At the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, we know that law firms insured with us can answer yes on both counts. Visit our website at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. TopCastActions.com ethically connects attorneys to potential clients. At topclassactions.com attorneys can review submissions locate effective plaintiffs for new lawsuits or advertise your settlement to add more claimants with membership in our attorney network you review complaints submitted by top class actions viewers and it's free to try no credit card required for the free membership go to topclassactions.com/attorney that's topclassactions.com/attorney
1: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, my co-host, Jay Craig Williams, and I are talking with Attorney Bert W. Reign, a founding partner of the law firm, Wiley Ryan, and one of the uh, uh, lawyers uh, who represented Wyeth uh, in uh, the recent Supreme Court decision. Um, already uh, in in the wake of this decision, uh, we're starting to see proposals come out for uh, perhaps a, a legislative uh, response. There was an op-ed, I think, earlier this week um, in uh, the Washington newspaper calling for uh, more of a sort of a, a comprehensive uh Federal preemption scheme uh, being put in place here. Uh, do you do you feel that uh, there should be a legislative response to this decision? And if so, what what should it look like?
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's from our point of view realistic to think that Congress, dominated as it is by a party that has had great sympathy for trial lawyers, is going to strengthen federal preemption. Um, in the area of prescription drugs. If anything, uh, the major legislative battle is going to be over proposals to weaken federal preemption in the area of medical devices because prior to this case, the court had decided the regal case, which involved a medical device and a statutory provision that said a state may not have a a different or additional requirement uh, for a medical device once it's approved by the FDA and the court had read that language as it was written and said, you know, a case premised on an inadequacy of design or an inadequacy of labeling for a medical device um, will not lie because Congress has said it wanted the federal standards to be exclusive. Um, the American Association for Justice and others have now said we've got to have a level playing field and to them it means eliminate the protection of medical devices and the endorsement of that protection in Regal. Uh, If we had our druthers, we would like to, of course, have the same language for prescription drugs that Congress has put in place for medical devices, but at this time, there's certainly no such legislative effort underway
1: and it were the congress were the structure of the congress otherwise uh, w- would you would you support some kind of a legislative response i mean i, I think the uh, the proposal was for a, a scheme that would sort of more strictly uh, r- regulate these kinds of cases perhaps uh, in the way that perhaps even create a specialty court or a special regulatory scheme um, w- would you be in favor of something like that well were... i think
0: that you know in in many ways pharmaceutical litigation is out of hand, uh, that there's a huge amount of second-guessing of scientific FDA decisions going on and juries reacting to injury by saying, well, they must be wrong because if the drug were truly safe and effective as approved by the FDA, no one would be hurt. Uh, That's really a total misunderstanding of a regime that contemplates that drugs will create risk, but on balance, the benefit will outweigh the risk. So, I think some reform in the area would be wonderful, The the questions want a political reality at this time. I, I think the trial lawyers have certainly enough strength in the Congress, more than enough, to block any reform that we would consider desirable. The real question is whether reforms they consider desirable um, will be put into legislation.
2: How do you feel about, or what do you think the pharmacy companies feel about in terms of disclosures? I mean, that obviously, when disclosures are made to the doctors, not all times those... Those um, that learned intermediary communicates those to the uh, to patient. Is there uh, a fear that uh, a full, complete disclosure somehow limits the sale of the drug?
0: Well, I mean that that argument has been made in cases uh, in which you know in which the plaintiff has said the company became aware of substantial risks that were not apparent at the time of approval. And suppress the information in order to promote the sale of the drug. I mean, certainly that's been argued in the Viox case. Um, It was argued way back in the kind of initial preemption cases, the ParlaDel cases. Um, There isn't really widespread evidence that drug companies are cavaliers who um, suppress information for the in order to boost sales. Of course, you know, a pharmaceutical company is going to be cautious about concluding. Uh, based on isolated incidents, that something is happening that is attributable to the drug or that what is happening is attributable to the characteristics of the drug as opposed to the way it's being used um, in practice. Because you can put out a label, but a label in no way binds a physician. In fact, the FDA, which sponsors the labeling, um, is specifically instructed not to interfere with the practice of medicine. So... Um, when you, even if you have a pattern of events, an adverse events involving or associated with a drug, it's not easy to figure out, is the drug really doing it, or is it simply a comorbidity, some kind of condition that affects the patient that's causing the problem that has nothing to do with the drug, yeah. number one? And number two, whether the labeling needs to be changed or whether it's simply a failure to understand or apply the labeling or an off-label use. I mean, Those are all difficult questions. Um, and drug companies need to assess the evidence and come to conclusion. Uh, juries come to much more rapid conclusions when they 're faced with an injury that took place before the company had reacted.
1: Well, Bert Ryan, we've reached uh, just about the end of our time, and before we conclude the show, we'd like to give you an opportunity to share your final thoughts on this case. And uh, if you'd like to share with our listeners uh, how they can follow up with you, uh, you're welcome to do that as well.
0: Well, Let me just briefly say, you know, clearly, when you've worked on a case of this kind, and we had it for a long time, starting in Vermont, um, we've... We can say that you know both the Chief Justice of the Vermont Supreme Court and the Chief Justice of the United States agreed with us. So I guess that's some consolation. Um, the result is disappointing, but we don't see this as the end of preemption arguments. Uh, we do think it will require some thinking about how to deal with the FDA, how to get a better administrative record, and a clearer enunciation at the jury level of what it is that the plaintiff thinks should have been done. So those are important considerations. Um, it remains to be seen, as the lower courts react to this decision, what the doctrine will be in the future. Um, as to contact, I can be contacted at b-r-e-i-n at wiley wileyrein, w-i-l-e-y-r-e-i-n dot com. And I thank you for the chance to talk about this.
2: Well, thank you, Bert. We really appreciate you being on the show. And, Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. To our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at com.
1: And a special thanks to uh, Mr. Ryan for taking the time to be with us today. And uh, an additional reminder to our listeners that we're also in the uh, podcast library on iTunes. Uh, Craig, we'll be back uh, next week to talk about another interesting topic. I look forward to seeing you then. Well look forward to it, Bob. Take care. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and Jake Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss.